choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 169 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 8, Christmas 1968. By most accounts, 1968 was one of the most turbulent years of the latter half of the 20th century. About 1,200 Americans were dying per month in Vietnam. Martin Luther King was gunned down in Memphis. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in California. The Democratic National Convention had exploded into violence. There was a highly contested presidential election. I have a series of clips to give us a perspective of 1968. To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe in the face of the evidence the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. On the off chance the military and political analysts are right, in the next few months we must test the enemy's intentions in case this is indeed his last big gasp before negotiations. But it is increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. This is Walter Cronkite. Good night. Good evening. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States was assassinated in Memphis tonight. A sniper's bullet cut down Dr. King as he stood on a hotel balcony in Memphis. Within an hour, Dr. King was dead. That happened at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The nation was shocked. President Johnson expressed horror and then postponed his trip to Hawaii until tomorrow. We're going to go to Memphis now the Lorraine Motel is a favorite place for Negro leaders to stay while in Memphis. It's a very nice new modern motel. He was on this second floor balcony, out, standing exactly where these two officers are, talking with some of his aides at the time of the shooting. The uh, scene immediately became confused. Officers ran forward and, and uh, attempted to secure the area. The shot apparently came from an apartment building directly across the street. The uh, Members of Dr. King's staff were there discussing a mass rally which was planned for tonight. They said that uh, suddenly there was a sound that sounded faintly like a firecracker or something, and, and uh, he was talking about he was the shot. musical program for tonight's uh, mass rally. Yeah, yeah. And he had asked you to play a special tune. Yes, yeah. Uh -huh. Did he say anything after he was shot? Could you tell how seriously he was wounded? He just said, oh. 
And it knocked him back, you know, off his feet. I would hope, I would hope now that the California primary is finished. Now that these primaries over, that we could now concentrate on having a dialogue or a debate, I hope, between the vice president and perhaps myself on what direction we want to go in the United States. What we're going to do for those who still suffer within the United States from hunger, what we're going to do around the rest of the globe, and whether we're going to continue the policies that have been so unsuccessful in Vietnam of American troops and American Marines carrying the major burden of that conflict. I do not want to, and I think we should move in a different direction. <laughs> Mayor Yorty has just sent me a message that we've been here too long already. <laughs> so uh, my thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Thank you. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot and possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Rafer Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. He has fired the shot. He still has the gun. The gun is pointed at me right at this moment. Take a hold of his thumb and break it if you have to. Get his thumb. They have the gun away from the man in this shot. They've got the gun. I can't see. I can't see the man. I can't see who it is. President Johnson made an impassioned plea for reason and order in the country. I speak to you this evening not only as your president, but as a fellow American that's shocked and dismayed as you are by the attempt on Senator Kennedy's life. Deeply disturbed, as I know you are, by lawlessness and violence in our country, of which this tragedy is the latest spectacular example. I have with me uh, Los Angeles Police Department Sergeant J.R. MacArthur. Uh, the senator was apparently here shaking hands, and the uh, suspect came, walked up, and apparently reached over several people and fired several shots at the senator where the senator was hit. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968. With Senator Kennedy, at the time of his death, were his wife, Ethel, his sisters, Mrs. Stephen Smith, Mrs. Patricia Lawford, brother-in-law, Mr. Stephen Smith, and his sister-in-law, Mrs. John F. Kennedy. There will be a requiem mass at uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, following which the senator's body will be taken on a train from New York to Washington. and thence to the Arlington National Cemetery, where he will be buried. There have been some demonstrations at this early hour in downtown Chicago's Grant Park. We heard a moment ago that tear gas has been used as the demonstrators are attempting to form a line of parade and march toward or on the amphitheater.
Tour Body Wagon. Into the crowd at the corner of Belleville and Michigan. There are, now and then there was another one, a bottle being thrown by the crowd. And the police clearing off the sidewalks in front of the Hilton. And the persistent chanting by the crowd, the whole world is watching. Dan Rather. What's your name, sir? And what is your name, sir? Take your hands off of me. Unless you intend to arrest me, don't don't push me, please. I know you won't, but don't push me. Take your hands off of me unless you intend to arrest me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Walters, you can see. I don't know what's going on, but this these are security people apparently around Dan. And obviously getting roughed up. We tried to talk to the man, and we got uh, bodily pushed out of the way. This is the kind of thing that's been going on outside the hall. This is the first time we've had it happen inside the hall. We, uh, I'm sorry to be out of breath, but somebody belted me in his stomach during that. What happened is a Georgia delegate, at least he had a Georgia delegate sign on, was uh, being hauled out of the hall. We tried to uh, talk to him to see why, who he was, and what the situation was. And at that instant, the security people... Uh, well, as you can see, put me on the deck. I didn't do very well. I think we've got a bunch of thugs here. But amongst all this turmoil on Earth, there was one positive event of 1968 occurring in space, almost a quarter million miles away. It was December 24, 1968, on board Apollo 8. It was getting to be a long day. The astronauts had been in orbit for nearly 14 hours, and they still had six hours to go before they would leave the moon. Borman could tell that his crew was tired. Lovell was hard at work on his landmark tracking, but there was a weariness in his voice whenever he spoke, and he was making mistakes. Several times he entered the wrong commands into the computer, triggering warning tones and startling Borman and Anders. Anders was tired too racing around to keep up with his photo plan. Borman knew how tired he had felt a few hours ago before he got some rest. The flight plan was just too full. The astronauts still had to do a TV show during the Ninth Revolution. Then, the all-important trans-Earth injection burn. Compared to that burn, Lovell's navigation was secondary, and so was Anders' photographs. The most important thing was getting home. Borman knew what he had to do. On the radio, they heard Mike Collins, Capcom, in Mission Control, asking about some of Lovell's landmark sightings. Apollo 8, we'd like to clarify whether you intend to scrub points 1, 2, and 3. Borman spoke. We're scrubbing everything. I'll stay up and keep the spacecraft vertical and take some automatic pictures, but I want Jim and Bill to get some rest. Anders couldn't believe what he was hearing. The last thing he wanted to do was waste time sleeping in lunar orbit. He still had stereo pictures to take, 
dim light photography, and filter work, and there were the targets north of the track he had to finish up. He didn't feel tired. Was Borman serious? Borman looked at the overcrowded flight plan. Unbelievable, the details these guys put in here, he said to Anders. A very good try, but completely unrealistic. I should have warned you. I'm willing to try, Anders said gamely. No, Borman said. You try it, and then we'll make another mistake. Lovell started to speak, but Borman cut him off. I want you to get in bed right now. I can do another revolution, Lovell said. No, get to bed. Hurry up. I'm not kidding you. Go to bed. Anders thought of all the unexposed film. He hid his frustration and asked his commander, What do you want me to do? Go to bed. We'll get that camera going when we get to daylight, Borman said. Now you guys go sack out for two hours. So that was it. Like it or not, Borman had the authority to send them to bed in the interest of keeping his crew alert in a dangerous situation. Just then, Capcom radioed their agreement with Borman's decision. The radio fell silent once again as Apollo 8 coasted out of contact with Earth and into total darkness. Lovell had gone to his sleep station, but Anders remained in his couch tending to the cameras, hoping he might hold off Borman long enough to take some more pictures when they came into sunlight again. Borman said quietly, We're doing fine. Why don't you go to bed? Anders was about as close to arguing as he had been. But, in a spacecraft almost a quarter million miles from Earth, an argument with his commander would have been tantamount to mutiny. Still, he tried to hang on. This is a closed issue, Borman said. Anders asked about the movie camera. Borman said he would turn the camera on when the time came. Finally, Anders went to bed. In his sleeping bag, he craned his neck to look past his couch through the tiny rendezvous window. Now he was really tired. He could hardly keep his eyes open. Ironically, this was the best view of the moon he had had the whole flight, and something on the stark ground caught his eye, a feature that stood out from the pulverized sameness. He was all but certain he was looking at a region of old lava flows. This was what he'd been looking for, some sign of volcanic activity in the highlands. He could hear the camera clicking away on automatic in Borman's window. He hoped it was getting this. But even if it wasn't, Anders was aware that he was bringing home something more important, a new perspective on Earth. On his way into a restless sleep, Anders began to realize they had come all this way to explore the moon, and the most important thing was they found the Earth. While Anders and Lovell slept, Borman floated in the commander's left-hand seat. Borman knew Anders was upset about the unplanned sleep period, and Borman liked Anders but he believed Anders just didn't have the experience to always see the big picture. Borman had been flying ten years longer, 
And he knew the real role of a commander on these missions wasn't to fly the spacecraft. There was precious little of that. The real role was to make crucial decisions. And in this case, the crucial decision was to keep his crew sharp for the trans-Earth injection burn. The flight plan called for two TV transmissions from lunar orbit. The second was for the ninth revolution a couple hours from now. The public affairs people had told him, quote, There will be more people watching these shows than have ever listened to a single human being in all of history. Say something appropriate, end quote. And with the help of a friend in Washington, Borman found something appropriate. He had it reproduced on fireproof paper and placed in the back of the flight plan. Before the flight, Borman had barely thought about the spiritual impact of going to the moon. But now that he was there, he couldn't deny it. To see the moon so desolate, looking like the earth must have looked before life, or how it would look after a nuclear war, was more sobering than he could have anticipated. But what moved him most was his own planet, the only color in the universe. To see the earth rising beyond the moon on Christmas Eve was all the confirmation of a creator that Borman needed. Now that he was here, he was glad to have the TV camera. He wanted to share his perspective with humanity. It was time to get Lovell and Anders up for the telecast. From the CBS News Space Center in New York, correspondent Walter Cronkite. Good evening. Apollo 8 is in its ninth and next to last full orbit of the moon. The astronauts, on the orders of command pilot Frank Borman, are scrubbing all remaining items from their flight plan, except one more television transmission, which should come up very shortly now, because they are tired and need to rest before the critical maneuver that starts them back to Earth early tomorrow morning. About three hours ago, Borman ordered Jim Lovell and Bill Anders to sleep and told Mission Control, we're getting too tired, we're scrubbing everything, I'll stay up, but I want Jim and Bill to get some sleep. Mission Control in Houston concurred, saying that virtually 100% of Apollo 8's goals had already been completed during the first seven revolutions. That was picture taking. And let's watch now as uh, they prepare to receive the pictures from uh, this ninth orbit of the moon the second and last of their television transmissions. They're just coming around on the uh, trailing side of the moon from their ninth trip around on the far side of the moon. Let's listen to Mission Control in Houston. And no word yet on Goldstone. The person you'll be hearing speaking to Apollo 8 is astronaut Ken Mattingly, who is so-called Capcom, Capsule Communicator. Still no calls. Of the moon. We've uh, got a picture here. The TV look okay? That's very good. Welcome to the moon, Houston. Thank you. I assume that shortly we'll get some explanation of the picture we're seeing. 
Doesn't make a great deal of sense to me here at the moment. We're uh, theorizing here at that bright spot in the top left center of your picture is the Earth. It's not very clear. the telecast complete, it was now time to prepare for the trans-Earth injection burn. That would occur in about two hours. It's difficult to understate the importance of that burn. If the SPS engine did not fire, Apollo 8 would have continued to orbit the moon with the astronauts waiting 
for their oxygen to run out. Recall that Apollo 8 carried no backup engine. The lunar module was not ready to go for this mission, so everything depended on the service module engine firing. There was no reason it shouldn't fire, but that didn't stop the worrying. Chris Kraft and his engineers back at Mission Control waited nervously. The burn would occur when Apollo 8 was on the far side of the moon. The clocks in Mission Control crept toward T plus 89 hours, 28 minutes, and 39 seconds, and the tension was palpable. If the trans-Earth injection burn went as planned, Apollo 8 would emerge at that time, 19 minutes past midnight on Christmas Day. If the engine didn't fire, contact would come as much as 8 minutes later. The mission clock, now read, 89 hours, 28 minutes, 39 seconds. The seconds passed in silence. Suddenly, a cheer went up from the flight controllers. Telemetry from Apollo 8 began to register on their screens. It took a few minutes for earthbound antennas to lock onto the signal. And finally, they heard Jim Lovell's voice. Houston, Apollo 8, over. Hello, Apollo 8. Loud and clear. Roger. Please be informed there is a Santa Claus. That's a funny. You're the best one to know. On the 10th lap of the moon, on Christmas morning, T plus 3 days, 17 hours, and 17 seconds, the service module engine fired to increase Apollo 8's speed by 1,070 meters per second. Apollo 8 was on its way back to the good Earth. I thought it would be appropriate to end this episode the way the moon program began, with President Kennedy at Rice University. But if I were to say, my fellow citizens, that we shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away from the control station in Houston, a giant rocket more than 300 feet tall, the length of this football field, made of new metal alloys, some of which have not yet been invented, capable of standing heat and stresses several times more than have ever been experienced, fitted together with a precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food, and survival on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body, and then return it safely to Earth, re-entering the atmosphere at speeds of over 25,000 miles per hour, causing heat about half that on the temperature of the sun almost as hot as it is here today, and do all this, and do all this, and do it right, and do it first, before this dictator's out, then we must be bold. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 169 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 8, 
Christmas 1968. Space Rocket History is a proud member of the History Podcasters and the Tech Podcasting Network. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Today, we salute the Vostok level donors. Vostok donors give $10 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Vostok donors. Had a few afterthoughts on this week's episode. In case it wasn't clear, I have the description of the clips I placed in the beginning of the episode. The first clip was Walter Cronkite giving his opinion on the Vietnam War as part of his newscast. The second was Martin Luther King's assassination in Memphis. The third was Robert Kennedy's assassination in California. The fourth was the protest and violence at the Democratic Convention. And the fifth was Dan Rather being roughed up at the Democratic Convention because he was trying to interview someone they were physically removing from the convention center. Well, I tell you what, 1968 was a very tough year for the U.S. and the world. Of course, I experienced it as a 7 and then 8-year-old child, so my view was kind of limited. The worst thing I recall from 68 was my grandmother on my mother's side of the family passed away, and she really loved me and spoiled me for 7 years of my life, and that was a hard loss. But then... At the end of the year, there was this transcendent moment on Christmas Eve. Men were orbiting the moon. It had never been done before. We were all amazed. Every Christmas Eve, my family would gather at my grandmother's house. Now, I'm referring to my grandmother on my father's side of the family. Obviously, she was still living then. Anyway... My uncles and aunts and cousins would gather together to keep Christmas and exchange gifts. And as I recall, back in 68, the TV was on, which was kind of different because my grandmother usually shut that off when the family arrived. Then one of my cousins said, Look, Mike, the astronauts are talking from the moon. And in the house, it fell quiet very quickly as we all watched the TV in amazement as the astronauts read from Genesis. It was a very special moment for all of us, and it did help end 1968 on a positive note. Most of my family from that Christmas are gone now, but I still remember them, and every year at Christmas I reflect back on the best Christmas Eve I ever had back in 1968. I have posted some pictures from this week's episode on the website, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. In donations, I was very pleased to receive seven donations to support the podcast over the past week. Tom R. from New York donated at the Orion level. You may remember Tom puts out a calendar every year with the dates of the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo missions. And it's a very nice calendar, and I want to give you his website. Actually, it's a Tumblr blog. It is Mission Steps to the Moon. And we thank Tom very much for his contribution to the Space Rocket History Podcast. 
Miguel F. from Chicago donated at the Sputnik level. Thank you, Miguel. Stephen L. from Canada continued his generous support of the podcast. He's already reached the Orion level and continues to donate, and I appreciate that very much, Stephen. Peter G. from Spain donated at the Apollo level. Don P. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Scott M. pledged on Patreon at the Shuttle level. And Richard L. pledged on Patreon at the Gemini level. Thank you, Don, Scott, and Richard very much. That brings our Patreon total to 59. Our overall donors for the year have reached 133, with a goal of reaching 250 by the end of 2016. To stay on pace for reaching 250 by the end of the year, we will need 13 more donors by the end of July. That seems to be a makeable goal. So uh, if you are able to donate, we certainly do appreciate that. It doesn't have to be a lot. You can make a one-time Sputnik-level donation for $5, or you can make a minimum donation of $0.50 per month at Patreon. If you like Space Rocket history, and you feel like it's probably worth $5 a year or $0.50 a month to you, go ahead and donate. The way you donate is to go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button on the top right of the page. Or you can sign up with Patreon to donate monthly by clicking on the Patreon link, which is just below the Donate button. Okay, all donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website, spacerockethistory.com, based on their donation level. And if you take the time, you can go over to the website and click on the Donors tab, and you will see all those that have donated during 2016. And I would like to add your name up there, too. To stay updated on the podcast, including previews of next episode, please follow me on Twitter at Space Rocket Hist is my handle on Twitter. And uh, if to follow me on Facebook, you can search for Space Rocket History or you can go to the website and click on the link there. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media and thanks to those who have already done so, like my retweeters, Jet City Star, 1202 Alarm, Ashley James Lee, ATM Inch Arch, Bonner to You, Buddy P. Murphy, Kambuntu, Chris Towers, David B. Nugent, Duke of Oil 60, DR4K3LE, Futurama King, Kadavi, 1202, Keith Drinkwine, M. Shook, Matty Tudor, Matty Bellinger, Rapid Mustang, Skibby, Stiggy, this is Alex Boyd, Tomasino, 1202, Warren Foxley, Tard O'Matic, and Rogers Carmel. I really appreciate it. If I missed anyone, let me know, and I will get you next week. This is the end of content for this episode. I had a few off-topic thoughts. If you're not interested, please feel free to switch to the next podcast. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will see if Apollo 8 can make it back home. Spoiler alert, they can. <laughs> okay. In podcast news, I thought I would give you a different statistic this week. Now, this 
statistic uh, requires some explanation. This is about how you listen to the podcast. These are the top 10 clients my listeners use to listen to the podcast. Number one, iPhone browser media player. Number two, podcast for iOS. And number three is iTunes. I really would have thought iTunes would have been number one. Anyway, it's number three. And But the top three, you'll notice, are all Apple-related. The fourth is Chrome Desktop. The fifth is Android on a smartphone. The sixth, I'm not sure what it is. It's called C-U-R-L. I don't exactly know what that one is. Seven, Chrome in the mobile version. Eight is Android Pop Podcast app. And nine is Internet Explorer. Ten is Overcast, which is also an iOS podcast app. In listener news, got an email from Ben D. from the UK. He had an encounter with an astronaut, and I'd like to share that story with you so we can live vicariously through him. (laughs) He says, hey, Mike, Pete and I were lucky enough to go to a talk by former NASA astronaut Mike Fole on Wednesday. He's a veteran of six space flights from the end of the shuttle era, including the last Hubble service mission two trips to the ISS, and most significantly, a four-month stay on Mir. Dr. Fole has dual British-American citizenship, so went to space as an American, despite his very English accent and sense of humor. The Mir trip was particularly eventful, as he was there when a Progress resupply ship crashed into the station. It sounded like pretty hair-raising stuff. He was then roped in to the emergency EVA to look for leaks and make repairs. I remember that incident. The uh, email continues. We also had a couple of talks from two women who work for NASA. The first does research on how microgravity affects the eye. In one of her experiments, subjects had to lie in a bed which had been tilted back so their legs were a little higher than their head. They had to stay like this for up to 70 days. They were even allowed to get up, they weren't even allowed to get up to go to the bathroom. Hmm. The other talk was, was from a lady who worked in mission control on the consoles during the shuttle area. She told the story of her assessment at the end of her training. All console operators go through one to three years of training before being tested in simulations to make sure they are ready. It turns out her husband was one of the simulation supervisors, and on the morning of the test, he asked her if she had practiced for camera failures. She said no. She had concentrated on scenarios that were most dangerous to the astronauts, such as loss of pressure. When it came to the test, the first thing that happened was all the cameras failed. She said that their marriage survived, but it was a little frosty at home for a while. After the talks, Pete and I met Dr. Fole and had our pictures taken with him, and he sent a picture. It looks good. Thank you very much, Ben. In personal news, 
I guess it's needless to say, Apollo 8, and especially that Christmas Eve broadcast, was very special to me personally. And I hope I conveyed that in my afterthoughts section as well. Changing the subject, I finally got to see Gene Cernan's movie called The Last Man on the Moon. It was available on Netflix, and I am going to give it five stars. It was historically accurate and very entertaining to watch. Gene really sacrificed a lot to be an astronaut and walk on the moon. He was so absorbed in his work, his family life really suffered, and his first marriage ended in divorce. If you get a chance, check that movie out, The Last Man on the Moon, and it's on Netflix right now. You may be able to find other places where it is, too. And while I am recommending things, I want to once again plug Andrew Chaikin's book, A Man on the Moon. The book is really detailed about the moon missions, and I have used it extensively for Apollo 8. Okay, that's all the time we have for this week. I hope to have episode 170 up by next Thursday. So long for now.